0: This is Eric Messerschmidt, and you're listening to CinePod, the cinematography podcast.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the cinematography podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock, and Ilya Friedman.
2: Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How are you? I am just ducky. How are you doing? Oh,
3: ducky. Uh, I guess uh, I'm over the moon. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's another wonderful day in the pandemic that somehow it's now post-Christmas. You know, we're closing in. As good friend of the show, Charles Papert would say, it's the taint of the year. Uh, it's yeah. this, this little the little stretch of time between Christmas and New Year's
2: yeah we're right right in the taint uh (laughs) when this whole thing started did you think it was there was any chance it was going to go this long and by this thing i mean the (laughs) pandemic
3: of course not, even though I'm just going to hearken back to our episode with uh, Brendan Davis where uh, he basically uh, foretold all this back in early April and uh, no, I, I thought that maybe uh, six months ago we, we'd have licked this in some way, the way that like I, well, China well, and I, South Korea I specifically
2: had. recall talk, talking to you about it and I think it was the last time that we ever recorded in person at your office. I think you're right. And I remember you saying that all your contacts in China had kind of gone dark for a couple of months and this mm. is, so we're we're probably We'll talking March or, uh, yeah, it's probably late March or early April when, we're, when we were recording this. And, uh, and you were like, yeah, and they're all kind of coming back online. So, you know, it's probably going to be a couple of months before, you know, it's going to suck for a couple of months and then we'll be back to our lives. And that has not happened.
3: No, it sucked for a couple of months and then it just kept on sucking. <laughs> and now it's was, now it sucks worse than it has ever sucked before.
2: Yeah, the the suckitude kept happening. I remember my wife, Doom, saying, like, oh, we're probably in this until July. And I'm like, now I'm like, if only. But we got the vaccine going. So, Ilya, who is on the show today? Today is fantastic cinematographer Eric Messerschmidt. Holy crap. And this is like a a, a weird dream come true because my short end a few weeks before we did the interview was Mank. I hadn't seen it yet. I was just reading about it and I'd heard that, you know, David Fincher's father had written it and he he had died, but they were supposed to make this back in like 1997 or something like that. And then what do you know, uh, Alana Cody goes and kicks all the ass and gets the cinematographer uh, for Mank, Eric Messerschmidt on the show. And I believe I say this to him in the interview. I I don't know if I was on or off mic when I said it, but uh, I will be shocked if this is not at least nominated for best cinematography.
3: It's really lovely. It's really, really good. And I don't want to go into it anymore because we go into it plenty with with Eric in just a few minutes here, but uh, we should move into close focus. What's, what's our close focus uh, topic today?
2: Well, our close focus today is sort of uh, day and date wars. Uh, and in this case, I think this is maybe a historic week. Maybe not. I don't I, I haven't like uh, double checked my math on this, but two movies. Big movies. Big big movies. movies. Yeah. Tentpole movies. Yeah. Two movies that would have been like the big Christmas moneymaker movies. Well, in fact, probably would have been the big summer blockbuster movies. Soul, the new Pixar movie from Disney and from Warner Brothers, Wonder Woman 1984. And the first Wonder Woman was a humongous hit. And this was supposed to be out in theaters, I believe, at the beginning of this past summer. And then Warner Brothers made the, I'm gonna call it semi-controversial choice to release it on HBO Max. So, it's, and it's not like Mulan when they released that on Disney Plus, where you had to pay a $30 premium for it. If you have HBO Max, you probably have already watched Wonder Woman 1984, if you feel like it. and. The same thing happened with Soul on Disney+. Plus. It's just regular old Disney Plus subscribers can just go watch Soul, which I did with both.
3: Yeah, I did not watch uh, Wonder Woman, but I did watch Soul. So I guess if this was uh, box office era, uh, I would have made my vote. My, my whole family, we, we watched real. Soul.
2: It was great. It was fantastic. Oh, and One- I should point out, by the way, that starting about last week... You could get, if you have a Roku TV, as I do, you can now get HBO Max on your TV. You are not locked into only being able to do it if you have an Apple TV box. Anyway, supposedly, according to uh, the trades, the Wonder Woman streaming has been so successful that they haven't just greenlit a third Wonder Woman uh, starring Gal Gadot and directed by Patty Jenkins. They are fast-tracking it. So, Yeah, that's an interesting choice. I don't know, what, I don't know yeah. how you fast-track <laughs> a movie of that it's of that size like oh we're gonna do it super fast it'll be out in two years <laughs> that's that's probably pretty accurate but i have to imagine
3: it's it's some uh major percentage of the scale of like a james bond or an avatar or something like that so yeah. it it's gonna be like moving mountains and i'm sure it's got you know major major logistics that all need to get worked out for the deal but clearly uh they're happy with it they they uh you know it 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 dropped off at the box office in China 92% from uh, in its uh, second week of release so really Yeah, that's, uh, that, that I thought was, it was very interesting. Yeah, that was, that was a headline today too. So, uh, but you know, China is not necessarily the reflection of the U S or the rest of the world on big blockbuster superhero movies and stuff like that. Sometimes they are, but, but not always. So I think that already the critical reviews for wonder woman are coming in fairly mixed and, uh, it's probably not the same blockbuster that the first one was, but certainly whatever they saw was, was uh, positive enough that they said, Hey, we're going to make another one of these and we're going to, we're going to rush it into an existence. We're going to make it happen.
2: I always have uh, concerns around second chapters of big superhero franchises. Uh, and it's because I have heard the story more than once where a movie... I'm not going to name a specific franchise, but we all know what several of them are. and um, <laughs> Whatever could you be talking about, comic book One of man. them will do pretty well and, and blow up and maybe even exceed expectations as the first Wonder Woman did. And then... They green light and fast track a sequel, and because the like the big sequences take so much production and so much planning, what they'll do is they'll just plan like five big sequences, and they'll start pre-producing them and pre-vising them and doing all that stuff. You know, kind of working on the logistics of these massive sequences before a script even exists. There, I, there's one movie I have in mind that I know for a fact this happened in. And uh, I feel like it was much to the detriment of this particular superhero movie because the story didn't end up cohering properly around the sequences. But the sequences were spectacular. But what it always comes down to and, you know, whenever I start talking about these movies, I always bring up The Dark Knight, which I think is probably one of the better superhero movies ever made. And it's just great writing, high stakes solid storytelling, good acting. And, you know, so many of the superhero movies end up, you know, with a third act where the hero has to fight some giant abstraction, 3D CGI monster, you know, dripping slime kind of thing. And <laughs> and I feel like it's, it's usually harder to, uh, you know, like, it's easy to understand the stakes of it. It's just harder for me to care about how many times our superhero can punch that monster until it dies. Like, I, I just kind of... Lose, I lose the thread. But more importantly, I feel like when you fast track something, hopefully somebody in the power structure is able to dig their heels in and make sure that the writing is important. Again, bringing up Christopher Nolan and, and his movies, those movies weren't like cranked out one, one a year. I think it took like five or six years for all three movies to come out. It might have been more than that even. And uh, not everyone's gonna love all three of those movies. I think the first two are both amazing classics and i do like the third one but you can't say it's for lack of them fussing over how to make them as good as they can make them and i think that when when i hear fast track i'm always afraid of uh you know what what happened with the first movie franchise i was ever involved with blair witch blair witch 2 was cranked out so fast that there was kind of no chance it could be any good the i want to know that good minds are simmering on it and writing a good story that people are going to want to watch
3: you know, you know um You bring up a really good point here regarding the the third act CG monstrosity that that really tends to plague superhero movies in particular. And it's true, I think a lot of people uh, do tune out and become detached at that point because... There's there's only so much fighting of CG characters I think one person can stand and and, and keep their mind, uh, but I'm actually reminded many many years ago There was a movie called blade also based on a, mm-hmm. a comic book I don't know if you saw it the Wesley
2: Snipes movie. I, uh, I totally did written by David S. Goyer an early exact, David S. Goyer script
3: you're, you're you're absolutely right and in the original ending the Stephen Dorff character Was uh, a giant wall of blood and Blade has to fight this CG wall of blood and they tested it with audiences and And the audience is totally tuned out It was all CG and you know everyone was like What's with this ending? I don't know man I
2: love watching people Fight walls I mean I prefer to watch (laughs) someone fight The credenza but a wall is good Maybe a An Anwar I I don't know what's what's more important uh, Architectural features or furniture When you're fighting it when it's made of blood I mean obviously a blood credenza
3: There's a a cat in the hat, three handled credenza uh, joke in there somewhere, but I'm just (laughs) going to let it go. Uh, But but sure enough, you know, you would think that the market research for something like that might make its way into the studio in such a fundamental way where like you don't see the same mistake being repeated time and time again even though it is and of course they went and reshot that ending and Steven Dorff has a giant sword fight with blade uh with wesley snipes blade character and and voila that's the new ending of the movie and it, i should say that movie works pretty well and it's it's quite satisfying but yeah uh that third act giant cg spectacular it, it could so be solved with uh, interesting characters and interesting um, stakes and interesting things that don't doesn't involve the world in jeopardy. So,
2: yeah, I mean, you know, it kind of goes fist in glove with another superhero mistake in my opinion, which is too many villains. Too many villains. Yeah. It's a sequel. You got to add more villains, but like the dark knight has two face and the Joker, but Mm. two face, never really becomes the villain of that movie. He becomes sort of a victim of that movie. Mm. Uh, And the Joker is always the main, the main villain. But yeah, you know, we, we see that time and again, and I feel like it's just this need to up the stakes and up the stakes and up the stakes. And it's, uh, I understand the narrative imperative to do that, but it it can become very frustrating. I feel like we're not talking enough, by the way, about uh, Pixar who have about as perfect a record as any studio in terms of their theatrical releases, And And, uh, and
3: continuing right now. Soul is it's it's up there with like, you know, any of their greats, but particularly like Monsters, Inc. or some of the others I feel like are like either perfect or near perfect movies. Like I will totally watch Soul again. It's it's fantastic.
2: What I love about Pixar and their process is very different from what we're describing with, you know, green lighting a movie and and, you know, kicking the filmmaker out the door. You know, as uh, I don't know if this is a misquote, but I seem to recall Sam Raimi said that of Spider-Man three. It was like being thrown out of an airplane with uh, silk and a thread and a needle and having to make the parachute while you're falling. And Pixar is the opposite of that. Pixar is director driven and they really work on their stories for a long time before they even finish writing them and make them into a movie. And their sequences, which are some of the best some of the best sequence work ever, in my opinion, uh, you know, they have these heads of story. I, I went to a seminar once when I was writing for uh, creative screenwriting and I watched how the heads of story develop these massive sequences of the heads of story. They're not writers, they're they're artists and they're storyboarding and, you know, so they'll start with a thumbnail and then they'll make it a little bit more refined and more more detailed to the point where they'll have like, probably now they're doing uh previs back then they were doing animatics, but they probably still go through an animatic phase and the director could say, nah, and they go off and start over. And they and they do that over and over and over again until the movie is like very dialed in before they bother, you know, doing all the all the big animation stuff. And, you know, nobody really gets the opportunity to do that. But it would be great to see live action films be given that much love and that much care and attention to the story and the storytelling as opposed to like, you know, hey, they like this thing. Do another one. Do it faster.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know, animation does, uh, I, I think it can be really tight and I think it's because a lot of people spend a lot of time poring over it in advance because they have to build, they have to build everything, everything. There isn't a, a human standing in front of a camera. It all has to be, it all has to be created. And I'm glad that they do. And, uh, the live action version of that, I'm not sure who does it or if it'll ever be done, but I sure can't wait to see it. I hope
2: somebody does. That'll be great. Yeah. But anyway, I, I think we're probably in years to come going to look back at today. Covid's gonna go away eventually, and we're gonna be allowed to go back to the movies. Uh, the question is, is everyone gonna go back to the movie theater if they can, if they can continue to do day and date? If uh, we were allowed to go to movie theaters this past weekend, how many people would have gone and? put their money down to watch either one of those movies in a theater as opposed to watching them at home. And I, and I say that again, having seen both of them and they are both built for the big screen. They are both, I I bet they're both amazing to watch visually on a big screen, but are we going back? It's, it's just a question. I hope we go back to the movies. I want to go back to the theaters myself, but, um, and I know I've probably said that like one out of every three episodes we've done since this crap started, but uh, I, uh, I I really do hope that we get back there. But I I also understand that from a business standpoint, Warner Brothers has this investment in uh, HBO Max. And, you know, when you look at the kind of I don't even know what kind of money Netflix is making, but it's obviously doing pretty well. And I think that all of these studios, Disney Plus, all that stuff, like they're all they're all getting in on this. And uh, it's a way that they honestly could could just give up theatrical if they felt like it. I hope they don't.
3: I think it creates an an interesting opportunity for someone else to come along too, who really does want to be a movie studio, but doesn't want to build them for the big screen. Uh, I mean, I I don't know. I don't know who that is. I don't know what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, Facebook has already said that they've got aspirations to move into future filmmaking. They were have a uh, did you know they have a a television channel essentially now on their their platform? I've heard about it. it. I haven't
2: seen anything on it.
3: So I, you know, we'll we'll see what the future holds. I have no idea if the Academy will continue to force people to show in theaters, but already prints have pretty much gone away. Man, it's it, you know, it, there's a bunch of question marks about what the future will hold. But I think that the theater will continue. But I think Academy rules might become laxer. They might become easier. Might be you might not have to you know debut
2: in New York and L.A. anymore. We'll see. Hmm. I would not call that a huge loss. <laughs>
1: All right. Hey, let's get to the interview.
2: All right. So here is Eric Messerschmidt.
1: The Cinematography Podcast Interview.
2: All right. We are here today talking in the very glamorous production office with cinematographer Eric Messerschmidt, recently of Mank fame, but with a lot of great work under his belt. But Mank totally blew me away. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
2: Absolutely. So I, I kind of like to break the ice before we even start and just kind of ask the question to get into your philosophical head as to where you're coming from uh, when you approach material. When you see a script, when someone when someone gives you a new script, be it Mank or Mindhunter or whatever, as you're reading it, what are you seeing when you read the script? Like where do the visuals start to come? And everyone says, well, I read it first just for content, which is understandable, uh, you know, just, just as the story. But like when and how do the visuals start occurring to you as you're, as you're, uh, analyzing a script?
0: Oh, the visuals are immediate. I mean, it happens almost like it's like the first word, like, I, you know, the stuff pops into my head and I and I start to think about it. But I have kind of tried to resist that, actually, because I think it's dangerous for a cinematographer to come to the, like, come to that first meeting with a director with too much of an impression of, of the movie you want to make. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I sort of store that stuff away, I think. And it's like, okay, this is interesting. I could see it done this way. Or I try to think about different ways to do it actually. And so that you can go into that first conversation with the director with fresh ears and and mm-hmm. listen. It's like, I think that's so important to just listen to hear what kind of movie they want to make and what they see. And then you can like go through that Rolodex of images and or, or references that you've stored away in your brain over the course of reading the script and start to compile that into like some semblance of an overall holistic reference for the movie you know so it's like this works for this related to what he he or she just said and i can see how this could work and okay all those ideas are out you know yeah and i guess there's you know there are always those instances where you go meet with somebody and they see the movie so differently from you where you're like okay i I don't know that i could collaborate with this person because we're not we're not in sync Mm -hmm. that hasn't really happened to me very much but i think that there's definitely a point where you're sort of like you're you're testing the water it's sort of like a first date you know like you go and you meet the director and you're like, OK, are we compatible, <laughs> you know, to, to a degree? I don't know. I guess that's a little bit of a tangent from what you're asking. But I think that I think that's important.
2: It's interesting, though, because I also feel like sometimes there's a, there's just a personal chemistry issue in terms of a, a director and a DP because they're going to be spending a lot of time together and they're kind of responsible for each other in a, in a lot of ways. They're both going to save each other's asses repeatedly and, you know, they're both supporting the other's vision. So knowing whether or not you can hear what they're saying or understand understand. understand you know if you see the movie the same way they see it or can be brought around to see it the same way that they see it makes sense to me
0: yeah i think so i i I think you know you're going to spend 150 days with this person and you're a very close collaborator you're not the only one but there's many but but you're you know you're a close collaborator with that person and you want to make sure that you can do good work with that person and You know, I think you're absolutely right. You're going to, you know, I mean, I, I think that you're as much of a a therapist for each other as you are (laughs) artistic collaborators, (laughs) you know, Uh, certainly in the prep, uh, you know, as they start cutting the budget or whatever, um, you know, and it's also, to be honest, I think like, it's really important when to have a relationship with a director where you can speak really freely. Like I call it a safe space, you know, you want to be able to like express and like throw ideas out that maybe someone hates and you have to accept the idea that if they hate, you know, like that's part of the process of evaluating where you are, you know, so it's like, okay, like, let's throw some things out on the table, being okay with it, if the other person doesn't like that idea, and being able to articulate it, if you don't like that idea, and getting past the ego of wanting people to want your, like your ideas. And I like, that's what I really look for is like, you want to work with a director and be like, what if we did this? And they're like, I don't want to, that's a fucking terrible idea. And you're like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Now, you know, you sort of set the benchmarks for each other, It's literally like, okay, let's, we have to develop the movie we want to make together. I have to learn what it is that you respond to so that I am making the right choices. Because in the end, like the choices have to be reflexive. Like you don't have time on the set to think about what the right choice is. You have to know the movie so well where you can be like, oh, we Well, in this situation. We obviously do this.
2: Yeah. And to kind of headlong into Mank, Mank is a movie that is highly stylized, period film. And you guys shot it, you shot it in black and white. There's, we It's did, not like yeah. you shot it color and, and desaturated it. There's only a black and white movie, right?
0: There is only, yeah, it only, yeah, exactly. There is no, yeah, you you can't sell it to United Airlines and play the colored version, you know.
2: Uh, yeah. You can colorize it. Maybe we can yeah, get you that You could,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't say that too loud. They'll do it. You know? <laughs> Actually, they won't. Netflix won't. But the look was a result of lots of conversations and sort of lots of, communication with david around what what it was we were making and what it was we wanted it to be and what it, what it was that we didn't want it to be you know um i didn't need to know that the movie his intention was to shoot it in black and white to read the script and then know that it should be shot in black and white it was like oh, really yeah. obvious you know you like it's one of those movies i guess i never thought like what would this movie look like in color like not for a second it was never like a you know and I i didn't pull any color references we didn't look at anything in color it was never like a like okay, that's just what we're gonna do. But the thing that I was really worried about, and I was uh, I was conscious of, was like the temptation of black and white photography and the sort of the pair. Like it can easily become a parody of itself. I think, and you see that when you have like TV shows. They're like, oh, we're gonna do the black and white episode now. You know, it's like like I was really nervous that I would make the wrong choices because I was like, I'm a cinematographer getting to shoot a black and white movie, and that's like not always the best combination.
2: Well, and I loved in it that there are kind of some nods to like style choices that would have been made back in the 40s, but also uh, like the way it's lit doesn't necessarily feel like the way it would have been lit per se, you know, like you go pretty low key. And where did you find the balance and how much of the telling was homage to to the movies of that time versus, you know, kind of your more modern technique? I mean, for instance, it's not done in, in Academy.
0: Well, with the the one thing that David was very clear about was he's like, I want to transport the audience. I want to bring them to that place to the to the point where they are watching a black and white movie and they feel like they're in the world, but they don't. We cannot hit them over the head with it, and they, we don't really, you know, it's like if they're if they're fifteen minutes into the movie and they're like, oh, it's a black and white movie, and it takes them out of the film, then we've failed. So that was sort of the rule, I guess, was like checking ourselves against that idea as much as we could. But I had pulled a ton of references. I mean, I had sent like basically I I read the script and then I went through and I sent David like 300 pictures and Mm -hmm. like fine art photography, movie stills, no painting this time. But I guess it was just it was fine art photography and film stills. And a lot of them were films of the period or earlier, like, you know, basically from the 30s to the mid 40s, like the sort of height of noir And then some modern black and white movies, like in particular, I looked at Manhattan, which is one of my favorite films. And and I had this idea that what if the bungalow Victorville bungalow sequences were actually sort of more modern and the earlier flashback sequences were where we leaned into the style slightly more and like that's where we kind of went more period and that was one of the ways we could differentiate the period and it's just from a technique standpoint so like the the interiors in, in the bungalow are kind of modern lit actually they're like kind of top lit and soft lit and there isn't a lot of hard light and and they're mostly lit from outside the room the room is what's lighting the actors and there's lots of practicals in the night scenes and stuff like that and you know the flashback sequences are much more modeled and there's chiaroscuro there girl there and there's like you know there's the shadows are deeper and but yeah there's you know there's definitely references and like there's movies there, you know there are moments of glamour in the film and there's moments of noir in the film, and it's sort of but it's kind of scene specific.
2: I, th- I mean I thought it was also interesting In that it's a movie that where like Citizen Kane is kind of hanging Oh it's like the sort of Damocles hanging over everything Yet we don't see a frame of Citizen Kane We don't see them shooting Citizen Kane yeah. We don't re- like the movie itself is almost Excluded but did you look at Toland's cinematography as a reference As well to evoke because I, I mean I did notice like a lot of deep focus kind of stuff Which was a hallmark of Of that movie but also it's something That, that I've seen David Fincher do a lot
0: yeah, I, well, I, I absolutely looked at Toland, but I would never give the impression or, like, suggest that, like, I was trying to emulate him, you know, mm. or, like, that I was actually really scared of that. I mean he's such a titan of the craft and and those images are sort of there's I didn't want to exploit it really you know I think there's like points of homage and there's you know it's like a little bit of pastiche maybe and we're sort of like leaning or winking at the audience like with the, when he drops the bottle um, he's yeah, obviously yeah. a reference and the deep focus was something we wanted to do although I mean it's obviously Citizen Kane is famous for that and Toland is on, you know he's on record talking about that technique but that that was something that predated Citizen Kane even you know I mean it not necessarily in cinema but certainly Certainly, in black and white, still photography, you know the F64 Club and Ansel Adams and this deep focus thing, and it's. I think it really just comes from the fact that you don't have the luxury of color separation in black and white photography, so you need you actually need some bite to explain depth to the audience because you don't have that added tool. So we, you know, David and I kind of looked at it and we're like, well, I just think black and white looks better in black, in deep focus. You know, it doesn't always look that great. Shallow focus it can look kind of muddy in the. Shadows, you know the 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 backgrounds blend, and that you know you don't get really defined bokeh. If you you know unless you've really let the scene really con- contrasty, and uh, and then it can look a little bit contrived. So it, it there were things that it just that just felt right. I think more than anything.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's always interesting to me, you know, when you're dealing with a movie about kind of a bygone era of the film business itself, you know, like this or Ed Wood. And I I love it when they go, as you did, in a black and white direction as compared to, and I'm not slagging the movie at all, but there was another movie sort of about this story, but more from Orson Welles' point of view called RKO 281 that came out in 1999. And I remember watching it and liking it and Liev Schreiber, I thought was pretty cool as Orson Welles, but I didn't feel as married to the period. Like it didn't feel like I was stepping into the time in the way that this does. It's a more immersive experience. And you you mentioned earlier about how uh, the stuff in Victorville was kind of made to look more modern. Were there other stylistic choices that you made for other parts of it as you went along? Like I'm just kind of interested in kind of the, the style homage slash reinvention that was going on in the making of that film?
0: Well, I I don't think I was that philosophical about it, really. I mean, it was sort of like, there were scenes, like there's stuff in Thalberg's office where it's a little bit more noir, sort of classic, late 30s, you know, kind of studio lit kind of stuff. Like, there's Phoenician blind shadows and he's modeled or he's lit from one side and it's got a little bit more that's sort of more classic looking there were places where we went a little bit more gestured and aggressive like the thalberg funeral where there's these shafts of light through the windows and i, I think it's it was just kind of scene specific and it was like okay what does the set look like and what sh- what's this scene about and we you know how how far can we go but it, you know david is always a little bit he, he always starts from a place of realism i think you know even though there's a hyper reality i think to to his movies everything sort of starts from well what was it What what would what, what would the set have looked like what is the environment where would it be and then where do we take it from there but it's always like it always starts there
2: and I mean, you'd already worked with David and uh, we'll, we'll go into Mindhunter, uh, David, I'm saying David, like I know him. you'd already worked with David Fincher before that on Mindhunter. But, uh, you know, as somebody from the outside looking in Fincher has an incredible reputation for meticulousness and detail and also the thing that always pops up in the listicles is like how many takes he does of stuff yeah. um, but but can you talk about like when you're working with someone who has such a keen eye does that kind of like open up amazing avenues for you like how do you approach it differently than if you're working with someone who kind of lets you do your thing for instance I'm not saying he doesn't because I honestly don't know but like somebody who's more like yeah we're going to shoot from over here and then they hit the craft service table while you light whereas I'm sh- I-, I am given to understand that Finn would have like pre-visualized it or gone through a lot of design meetings and stuff sure. on literally everything So just kind of tell me about working in that environment
0: well it's it's fantastic. I look forward every day I get to work with him I mean it's the best I you know he and I are very close now we're good collaborators I think but it's you know I, I think the cinematographer's job their primary job is to learn what the director responds to and figure out how best to support their process and then bring something to the party, you know, you have to contribute as well, obviously. So, uh, I mean, David is a student of cinema and he is a student of the cinematic process. So he has made it his business to learn the business and learn what everybody does and 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 what the tools mean and what, you know, and, and a lot of that is to protect himself, I think, and make, you know, and to, to maximize his day and maximize the time with the actors. And, you know, so he is always looking at what's going on with respect to how it's affecting the overall film but he is incredibly collaborative you know he is really open to ideas and he has the environment on the set is such where you can present you know, a plan or a solution, or, I mean, he is looking for people to to bring something to the party and he is open to that in, you know, very much so, but he's interested in preparing. I mean, I don't think he's someone who's particularly interested in discovery. So, so to speak, you know, I think he's, mm-hmm. I mean, he's interested in discovery, but not under time duress, you know? Uh, yeah. And the, you know, film set is a, is a, is kind of an expensive place to experiment at least with things that you probably could have figured out in advance. So we do, you know, we spend a lot of time prepping and we spend a lot of time discussing things and figuring out different approaches and then committing to them. And then we sort of, you know, you like jump in, you're like, okay, we're going to do this. And, you know, sometimes that stuff's been tested well in advance or we've pre-visited or whatever. But his version of discovery, his version of kind of exploration is with the actors. It's like the whole focus has been like, well, let, give me the time so that the the one variable that I – want to experiment with is performance and everything else is sort of directed that way I guess so I think having a director who understands the challenges that cinematographers are faced with is an incredible asset because you know if you have directors that don't really understand the technology or that or they don't have they don't have a technical background I was explaining to someone like that why you have to do an iris pull when you go outside for example is you know and and, and how that affects the edit and how that's going to affect the sequence and you know those things you don't have to do that with David. You know, he knows that going in. It's like, oh, well, if I take the camera from here to here, Eric's going to have to close down three stops. We're going to have to figure another solution out or he's going to want to tenant it and control the ambience or whatever. And that will affect the way the movie looks or it'll affect the cutting sequence. And so when those sorts of conversations don't have to happen, you can have more nuanced conversations, which is great, you know. Um, I want to so,
3: I, I want to jump in actually real quick just uh, oh, uh, go, be- go before ahead. you you go Ben uh, I've met David a few times over the years and he's definitely on the cutting edge of technology always with stuff and this might be the first black and white originated movie with a high dynamic range finish and I, I'm not aware of another one can you tell us a little bit about the technology uh or maybe the hassles or lack of hassles of doing the your your hdr finish versus like a standard dynamic range finish Uh, i i will preface all of this by saying that uh, i started watching Mank, and for about 15 minutes i thought oh my god i've never seen something i disliked more the look from eric messerschmidt then i realized oh my God, my TV is in some different mode that does not, that is not. Like, who is this guy? I was who like, is this there is no gamma. I was like, it's extremely <laughs> contrasty. There's these few highlights. I'm like, what is he trying to do? And then, no, of course, it's my television. My television could not deal with it. But then once I put it into the correct mode, it was like, Oh my God! And now I have to backtrack and say that I think it's actually the most beautiful thing I've ever seen you do. I oh, think it's it's you. incredible, and I I just want to know because I, I'm probably not the only Netflix subscriber out there whose TV does not default correctly when this goes out. Uh, I mean, do do you have trepidations about people not seeing your work the way it's intended, or can you talk about your the process of how you assure that that your intention is going to end up on everybody's screen?
0: Well, it's that's that's terrifying to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I Well, look, I think in this day and age, unfortunately and and by the way, I, actually, I'm not sure that it's new. Uh, we as cinematographers have to learn to let go of the the reality that we can't control the viewing experience for the audience, and we never really have been. I mean, if you've traveled you know around the United States in the last five years or so and, and gone to the movie theater, you know you see a, a wide array of quality control. You know, so it's it's not like the cinema experience is particularly high end these days, unfortunately, you know, which I think is a tragedy. I wish the exhibitors would do a better job and take more responsibility there. But but uh, so I think in to some degree, companies like Netflix in particular may, quite frankly, offer a better experience or a more consistent experience, actually. But, yeah, I mean, I worry about it because we spend a tremendous amount of time getting it right or getting it to be where we want it. And, but then you sort of have to, you know, let the balloons go and hope that people are, you know, you sort of have to just hope that people's TVs are right or they know enough to, to, to fix it when they notice that it's wrong and, you know, not post on Twitter about it, (laughs) but, but (laughs) fix it, you know, but uh, yeah, I I, sure I worry about that. I I mean, the HDR thing is something I adore. I mean, I've gone, we did it on Mindhunter. I I now monitor an HDR and everything I shoot, even if it's an SDR finish, uh, I, I think the grading process is just easier. I think I get better exposures. I think it's, um, I think I actually think shooting an SDR digitally is it's a little bit like shooting film, but exposing on the video tap. It's Mm. just like, it's a kind of a ridiculous idea because the sensor is so wide and you have so much dynamic range and you get to see more of the sensor and you really can put the exposure where you want it. So, um, so yeah, we've been doing that and, and, and we, yeah, we, you know, I mean, you get really esoteric and geeky about it, but yeah, we we developed some HDR LUTs, and we we figured out how to do the Dolby Vision finish in black and white, and we certainly, you know, went down the rabbit hole with that. And um, you know, I'm, I'm really glad we did it that way. It made it made the grade easier, and I think it's the best way to see the film. Actually,
3: I agree. It's spectacular that way. <laughs> it well, looks really, real, certainly much better than uh, a TV set to some sort of bizarre profile that has nothing to
2: do <laughs> with HDR. So. Uh, but right, uh, thanks so much, yeah <laughs> So let's, let's uh, go back. Let's, let's go way back. I kind of want to know, like, what got you going down this path in the first place? Like, when did it first occur to you that being a cinematographer was a thing you could do?
0: Oh boy. Well, I mean, I, I was kind of, I was like a geek, you know, I still am, but I was a geek in school and I was into theater. I was, but you know, I was into the technical side of theater and building sets and lighting and sound. And um, I really liked, I like doing stuff with my hands. I like to get, you know, I like power tools and wire strippers and you know I kind of was into that as a kid and I loved movies but I didn't have my my parents were artistically inclined and they were you know they were liberal and they really you know they were like encouraging us to watch foreign films and stuff but I you know I was a child of the 80s and it was you know it was like Goonies and Star Wars and you know kind of what's available to you when you're of that age in that era and then I I saw Close Encounters and I was like oh okay (laughs) <laughs> I get it. You know, there was like this kind of light bulb went off in my head and I got really interested in the kind of in media and I got a job as a, as a PA at a, um, at a TV station. And I was like, well, maybe I can go to film school. And I, I took a film studies class at a local college. And, you know, I, I, that was where I first saw Citizen Kane actually. And, and we watched a lot, you know, I, we watched Casablanca there and I saw, you know, I saw a bunch of movies that I wouldn't have normally otherwise have seen. hmm and, and then it was, it just kind of reinforced the idea. So I, I went to film school, I went to Emerson college and I got there and I was immediately like in, like, suddenly my geekness was acceptable and it was cool and it was fun. And I could, you know, I could like really embrace it. And and I just started crewing, like from the moment I got there, I was like, if you need help on your student film, I'll be, I'm your guy. I'll, you know, I'll go to, I'll stay up all night. I'll Carry stuff I want to do it and they're like oh really cool you know it was like young fresh meat you know in the film school world and I was just doing you know I was working on movies like every every weekend for all the all these graduate students and stuff and towards the kind of middle and end of my college career I I was like a working grip and electrician in Boston and I, it was like a union electrician and oh, I was wow. doing you know like low budget medium to low budget feature films and commercials and and I stayed in Boston in the summers, and I would work there, and that was my summer job. And so then by the time I moved to L.A., I actually knew, like, I knew some bigger key grips and gaffers that were living in L.A. that had come to Boston to do jobs, and they had met me, and they uh, hired me.
2: But, like, when did the the cinematography bug specifically strike you? Was it before you were in college or while you were in college? I think, or, yeah, as I mean, I was crewing. in
0: high school, I guess, and I was, you know, we were making little movies. You know, it was like mm-hmm. little kind of stupid movies, and you know, the things you do in high school, like, yeah. you know, like little fantasy films or like animations and stuff like that. And I, I was always the guy that was like figuring out how to do forced perspective or figuring out how to do some fancy lighting thing or like, Oh, it's like, how do you light a silhouette? How do you, you know, borrowing the smoke machine from the school's theater and take, you know, taking it home for the weekend, <laughs> no, like <laughs> doing stuff like that. So I was, I was into that kind of, it, I, I think I, it was just like, it just felt right. It was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm kind of a science nerd. I'm, but I'm artistic and I'm curious. And I, you know, I was like, I had no interest in acting or anything. And I didn't, you know, it was like, I didn't particularly like talking to actors. So it was like, well, I'm not really a director. (laughs) you know. It's like, it's not really like that doesn't, that's not attractive to me. I guess it was kind of gradual. It wasn't like, I'm going to be a DP, you know, but I remember being, I mean, definitely pre-college. Like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. Yeah. You know i really now i really believe fundamentally that that cinematography is much more in common with editing than it does with photography
2: oh really Uh, yeah
0: well i think cinematographers get a disproportionate amount of of credit for how movies look and they are under credited for the how, how the story is told because when you break a scene apart and you assemble a sequence that's how you build tension that's and that is of course the director's job but but the cinematographers, they're right with them, and there are huge differences between a 29-millimeter medium close-up and a 65-millimeter medium close-up. And there are big differences between when and how you dolly the camera, when you push in, you know, when you cut wide and how those how those wide shots develop. And if you're, if you're developing a master versus cutting immediately into a sequence or, you know, that stuff is – cinematographer is a huge part to play in that process, I think.
3: I think you're um, right, and I'm going to steal that because oh, that's that's so accurate. Because really, as as the DP, you are so fundamentally involved in how those scenes uh, play out and break down and the pacing
2: and everything else. That's it's huge. Yeah,
0: DPs are uh, receive too much credit for how the movie looks and not enough credit for how the story is told.
2: Yeah, yeah. that's so interesting. And, you know, I, I never. I mean, I've thought about that on on certain levels because like a DP will let you know if you've got what it'll take to edit, and I've worked with. Uh, dps who were like yeah we're gonna we're gonna cross the line here but it'll cut don't worry and right. they were right um yeah. wh- whereas if I just did that on my own I guarantee you a thousand percent of the time it would not cut so you know like somebody who who just has it in their bones that they know when that stuff's gonna work and uh, uh you know a good DP won't let you leave the scene till it's till you've got enough coverage to make it work in the post
0: right yeah I, I mean I really I I just and I, it's it's the part of the job that most excites me actually I think it's so interesting to figure out how you're going to assemble something and when you're going to reveal something to the audience and how you do it. And, you know, especially non-verbally, like if you're going to, you know, going to use, you know, the kind of Spielberg, like the pan over and reveal something or that, you know, that kind of those types of storytelling, you know, the very Hitchcock style coverage. Uh, I mean, like Hitchcock Truffaut is like my favorite book. You know, you read that and you like sort of see how those sequences get created and and assembled. So yeah, I mean, I I love that part of the process. I adore it. I think it's so interesting and cool. And, and it's always it's like playing guitar. You know, you can always learn something new. You like it's you know. And the lighting to me is is much more reflexive to that process. It's like I never light the set until I know where I'm going to put the camera. And I never light the set. I mean, I I fight tooth and nail to never light the set unless I know where we're going to put all of the camera positions. Um. Like I never start with where we're going to, how we're going to light it. Like I never, you know, I don't, I never talk to the gaffer first. I always talk to the director with the operator and I, and I really fight hard to set the shots up myself and consider like composition. I mean, even if it's handheld to think about like how we're going to assemble it and what the sequence is going to be and where we're going to cut it, what, what, what the staging is, even if it's very super verite and loose,
2: well, and I, I used to start our interviews here asking DPs if, uh, when they looked at a script, if they saw it in compositions or they saw it in lighting. And one of the underpinnings of that was that I noticed, perhaps this might just be confirmation bias on my part, but I noticed that people who came up through the camera department were more interested in the lighting and people who came up through the lighting department were more interested in the lenses and the camera positions. Sure. So I I will uh, resurrect this question and kind of ask you, when you're looking at a scene, are you thinking, it sounds like you're saying you're thinking of it in terms of compositions for for. The coverage or maybe you're thinking of it as a holistic coverage uh thing
0: uh, I, I think about it in cuts like i think about it in sequences like I, mm-hmm. I i think i i look at stuff and you know like i'm prepping this movie now and and the director and i spend a lot of time together talking and it's like well maybe this could be a one or maybe we could stage it this way and maybe you know if we did this and then this and then this we can do it in three cuts or this really deserves like very measured structured compositions or this you know yeah. i don't really think about it con- I, I think composition Composition is so situational and it's so specific to the to the set and the environment you're in, and and unless you're going to like pre-block this, you know, if you, unless you're going to say you you stand there, you stand there, you stand there, and you have really pre-visualized everything and you're storyboarded it, uh, that's where I, I, I mean, you know, the kind of conformist Bertolucci kind of thing of like I you know this is the shot I, I got to get, but I don't I don't think of it. I think a composition is sort of the last thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. In a way, you know, you sort of like you, you can generally find a great frame in most well-designed sets you know
2: that's a, a great answer so moving forward you know previous to uh mank you've done a lot of tv but it's been stuff like raised by wolves which is under uh you know the auspices of ridley scott so also somebody known for their perfectionism and again you know uh like we said earlier you haven't like done like a small character piece that's like handheld and available light it's all highly highly stylized stuff you know so mind is extremely stylized raised by wolves in a lot of ways i don't know i mean they're i'm not gonna compare which one's more stylized but they both involve a lot of visual effects too and um that are kind of invisible visual effects can you talk a little bit about how you work with that you know i, I saw a vfx breakdown of Mindhunter, and it was just like shocking to me how many of like the per- period vehicles or hey there's there needs to be a sidewalk there or whatever like that stuff was was or just even painting out dolly tracks uh how much of that do you know when you're in production like okay well you know it doesn't matter that we're going to see these dolly tracks for painting that stuff out like how do you kind of fold the visual effects into what you're doing and how closely do you work with vfx supervisors to do it
0: well there was there was no vfx supervisor on my Hunter*. it was basically david and i doing it we didn't have one on, on race by wolves we did uh I, race by wolves the the effects are more complex mm-hmm. but i i mean i i think of visual effects as like a tool it's not really like a showcase thing and that's Mm -hmm. kind of i think that's the danger like you you get in this situation where like visual effects is like an amazing extension of the thing you can't do in you know it's like like you know in mindhunter we did the stuff a lot where we yeah we painted out the dolly track because we wanted the camera to move in a very specific way and had we done it on a crane or with steadicam the camera would never move that way so you know visual effects helps us paint the dolly track out because we had this idea that we were trying to protect we did uh, i did a lot of stuff where it was like we put the b camera in the shot and then shoot a clean plate because we wanted to get the performance in one take you know oh that's great. Cool. or we you know we put the or we want to shoot wide and tight at the same time and and the, the boom operator you know the, the sound department that always kills the sound department because they can't get the mic close and it's like well we'll do this as a you know we'll do the wide shot as a lock off or a motion control shot or whatever and you guys put the but the boom operator, he can be in the frame as long as you don't cross the actors, like get close, get great sound, it's fine. And then we'll, you know, we'll erase them. So, you know, I think if you look at it that way in terms of like, well, let's solve the problem at hand and like, let's use it to its advantages. It, it can be incredibly powerful. You know, it's like, it's when you start to kind of break the uncanny valley of it. And, you, you know, yeah. you kind of descend into this, like, well, look what we can do. Like the audience knows we can do all that stuff. So it's not really that impressive. You know, if you're, I mean, Ridley does it really well because he's sort of he, he he's really measured about how he uses it you know it's like you, you watch the martian you really believe you're on mars you know you're like oh man how did he shoot it on mars it's
2: you know um <laughs> uh. Well, and in Raised but, by yeah. Wolves, I mean, like, obviously it's science fiction because it's taking place on another planet and there's spaceships and all kinds of stuff. But in, you know, zero gravity, blood and all kinds of stuff like that. But it it, it does feel gra- super grounded and naturalistic. And I'm assuming that there's all kinds of contraptions and stuff that had to be painted out. Well, so talk a little bit about, like, how you approach that, you know, again, given that uh, on, um, like you're saying, on Mindhunter, there wasn't a VFX supervisor, I'm just assuming that you guys knew what you could get away with and what would be paintable and fixable and, and, and enhanceable. But on raised by wolves, like that's, there's a lot of straight up VFX in that show.
0: Yeah. It's much, it's much more complex and it's also, you know, the costs, you know, we sort of knew what the, I mean, we weren't making any spaceships, obviously Mindhunter, We weren't bringing, you yeah. know, we were doing paint outs, you know, and there are matte paintings and things, but it's all kind of 2d effects. I had been fortunate in all my years as a gaffer to make friends with cinematographers. And I knew a lot of cinematographers. And then I kind of was suddenly a DP and I had nothing to show anybody. <laughs> you know, <it> was like, <laughs> and I didn't really want to be a, gaffer it was like that seemed like a mistake to sort of come out of Mindhunter and I, you know I felt like we had done some pretty good work and I felt I had grown a lot and I was excited about what, what I had done and I you know I could you know we had done a lot long, long extensive post process on the show where I was in the process of grading it with Fincher and and I wasn't really working you know I, I had no because I had literally no reel you know I mean except for things I had shot 10 years prior that I it was not proud of and all of the DPs that I used to work for, um, as, as their gaffer, all, unanimously said, well, we won't, we refuse to hire you.
1: Uh,
0: (laughs) we won't, we won't allow you to come back to gaffing. We think this, you know, Claudio said that and Faden said that. and, And Jeff said that he said, no, you're, you know, you, this is what you need to do with your life. Um, so I was sort of stuck in all honesty. I didn't really know what to do. And, and, and then Darius Wolski called, was shooting Sicario 2 in New Mexico. And he said, hey, I've, uh, I've got this second unit. You want to, I know, you know, you just shot for David. Like, why don't you come shoot the second unit for me? And I spoke, okay, sure. And I got on a plane and I needed the job, you know, and and I flew to, to New Mexico to shoot the second unit for him. And he was doing beautiful work on the movie. And I helped him out with a few sequences and we got along great. And I went home and I, i got a call uh you know years later darius had said to ridley hey you should you should hire eric to shoot to take over raised by wolves after i'm after we shoot the pilot and that's how i got on that show it was all it was all Wolski. yeah i'm really i'm really glad i picked up the phone when he called you know (laughs) uh yeah i mean there you know there's and, and legion is a similar thing you know i was sort of dana gonzalez uh you know dp uh and he he was moving up to direct and he needed someone to shoot his episode of legion and uh and he called me out of the blue, and he said, "Hey, man, I love what you did with Mindhunter. Will you come shoot my episode?" And and I didn't actually know Dana. I mean, I knew who he was, obviously, but I I did, we we hadn't met before, and we just got along fantastic. And I I showed up at Paramount, and I shot I ended up shooting several episodes of the show. It's a really fun show, super visual, and totally different, and you know, really outside the box. And had a great time. And it that was an environment where you you really could not fail. Like you you just had to try and do. You know, it was like there was so much opportunity to to experiment visually oh that's there. cool and yeah it was really what's the fun. key to
2: creating an environment like that for people i feel like that's you know it, it's a successful show people love that show like what was it about the environment that you were working in that made you feel more free and and you know able to do whatever you wanted to try
0: well i think it's i think it just comes from the people you're working with and the and the tone of it i mean that that noah holly was the showrunner on legion and he was really interested in this idea of kind of you know, he's there's there's a whimsical quality to the show that he had put in when he directed the pilot with Dana that Dana had shot, and it, mm. it, it has this playfulness even though there's there's a dark there's a dark undertone of the show and i mean it's dealing with mental illness and it, you know there's a lot to unpack there but um you know there's a, a element of fantasy you know it's, it is it is basically a superhero story so there's you know there's different ways to play and you know it was i think noah is somebody who kind of looks at it like well let's like how would you normally do this and be like oh well we'll put the camera over here and then we'll cut to this he's like okay great just do it any other way <laughs> you know <laughs> and there was this sort of like that's that's kind of what it was like working on legion and i mean i was only there i mean it's really that is really dana and polly morgan's show i mean i was just a guest but um but i had a great time and and i met some you know really good people that that i remain friends with you know so it's yeah that was that was great but then dana went on dana of course had, had shot fargo and that's what i knew him from and i you know he wanted emmy Ford and i mean he's you know he did such spectacular work and it's very different i mean fargo probably has more in, t- in common with mindhunter than
2: i was about um, to say yeah it really yeah i mean like fargo is sort of like mindhunter as a dark comedy more yeah,
0: exactly but. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure so you know it's much more composed and, and tempered and structured and he had called me actually to, to come do the series with him when they went back to do the fourth season i wasn't available because we were doing mank but then Mank wrapped and Dana ended up shooting the, the finale and he called me back and he said, you're off the movie, right? And I said, yeah. He's like, well, come, come to Chicago, shoot the, shoot the finale with me. And I did. Sweet. So that's, yeah. So that's, that's how I ended up. But I only shot the one episode, but it was, yeah. You know, of course I love working with Dana. So anytime. I'd...
3: It's a really memorable episode though, too. I mean, you have the, uh, you have sort of the comeuppance for so many characters and things and the way it all wraps up. And Yeah. I mean, we kill everybody.
2: Spoiler <laughs> <So, laughs> <roller>, alert. <laughs>
3: Spoiler. Uh,
0: yeah so uh yeah it was fun uh
3: you, you mentioned earlier that you worked on bones uh were you aware that uh noah also worked on bones
0: i yeah that's we he <laughs> he and i had met and and we remembered each other but it was sort of like you know it was one of those things it was like i remember you when you were a uh, you know you were like the junior writer on bones and he was like i remember you when you were the gaffer on bones you know it's like uh, <laughs> uh yeah
3: Nice. That well, you know, uh, it it's a gigantic industry that's about 2 miles wide. It's like uh <laughs> yeah. you you yeah, you, you, you you know, you run into all the same people on the way up uh, are are on their way up as when they're on their way down as they say. For so sure. it's like yeah, for it's sure. uh uh I think I think that's really cool. I just I, I I always love all the connections and things that that you that like I I got a call from someone I worked with from 15 years ago today looking for a camera. So, you know, you you never know. You, you never know when it's going to happen. So Sure.
2: So, uh are you uh this is a A hacky question, but I I feel like I kind of have to ask. (laughs) uh, Are you more drawn now to working in episodic TV or more drawn to features? Because I feel like uh, I don't want to speak out of school, but I'll be shocked if Mank doesn't get a nomination for you. What's your inclination or do you like them both?
0: I don't really care if the story is good. You know, it doesn't matter. It's like, I don't, uh, I think the kind of the snobbery of like, oh, I only do features thing is a little bit tiresome and not really true anymore you know i mean i think there's like such good filmmaking being made and i do refer to it as filmmaking in television mm-hmm. you know i think it's i will say you know i would prefer you know if i do another tv show i kind of want to i prefer to do it just myself i much prefer that than alternating and having to sort of wrangle that that you know not that because i've had bad experiences at all i mean i've actually had brilliant experiences but the kind of opportunity to start something and finish something is really nice yeah you know, and it's not so much about authorship. It's just sort of the, the process of completing something and taking something from one place to another is, is, is really nice. You know, I love the, in terms of lifestyle, I think the television can be quite exhausting and, and challenging for, you know, people with a family and you're like sort of living and it's, you know, it's,
2: it's and a And you lot. don't have as much prep generally.
0: And you don't have as much prep and, you know, but so there's, there's pros and cons. I mean, the kind of feature schedule is really nice. I'm on a movie now and I, you know, it's, we have a good amount of prep and we have big things to solve, but the movie will be done in, you know, in a few months and then it's on to the next thing. And so that kind of rhythm in, in my life right now is nice, but I, I it's, I, it doesn't matter to me as if the people are good and I think we can do good work together and the story is worth telling. Like, I don't, I mean, I'll do a short film or, you know, or a miniseries or whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. it makes no difference.
2: Let's, I think that's an amazing place to uh, to wrap up. Thanks again for coming on the show. If people want to find you online, uh, where can they go?
0: Oh, uh, I guess Instagram's probably the only one. It's like yeah, just at e messerschmidt. So I'm there.
2: Definitely. So uh, yeah, our listeners should uh, follow follow that, and uh, you know check out his work. Thank you again so much. Congratulations on on all your success and and most recently with Mank. Just just loved Mank. So I, I uh, it's exciting to talk to you about it.
0: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.
2: So that was Eric Messerschmidt. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, congratulations on Mank. Mank was really awesome. It really was great. And uh, a wonderful interview.
1: And now, short ends. So Ben, it's uh, our
3: famed short end time of the show.
2: You have a, uh,
3: a short end this week?
2: You have an obsession? I, I do, and it won't surprise you what it is one bit. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Is it an app? It it is not an app. Oh, okay. Uh, TV show? What's your next guess? TV show? It is a TV show. Okay. It is a a TV show. Does it involve murder? uh, Yes, (laughs) It does
3: involve murder. How did I know this?
2: Okay. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) as uh, we were talking about at the beginning, HBO Max finally came uh, to Roku. So I was able to kind of look through the stuff that was available. And uh, one thing caught my eye. And it is a show called heaven's gate the cult of cults (laughs) of course it is of course and i believe that i actually had a short end uh, maybe three years ago two years ago that was the podcast by glenn washington of uh snap judgment fame he had a show called heaven's gate that was an amazing podcast and i've actually listened to it all the way through a few times uh, but I never get enough of an insane new age UFO cult. And I, I know that it's awful because it's a true story. But also, you know, all the terrible things that happened were uh, self-inflicted. Nobody was a victim here. Everyone did what they did of their own free will. And it's super oddball and crazy. And the people who ran the cult were nuts, but they all believed that if they committed suicide, I believe it was in 1997 when the comet hale was going through our solar system, that there was like a little cloud behind, or in in the tail of Hale Sorry, the tail of a comet actually is in front of the comet. I don't know if you knew that, mm-hmm. uh, but there was a little blob of something, which they said was a UFO, it was a, a spaceship. That if they all killed themselves at just the right time, uh, which they did by eating phenol barbitol laced ice cream. Uh, they could get Jeez. onto the spaceship and move on to the next level of existence, the next plane of existence. So Heaven's Gate, the Cult of Cults, which is directed by Clay Tweel, and it is shot by two cinematographers, Jeff Powers and Hillary Sperra, Looks great. Great archival footage because these Heaven's Gate people shot a lot of video of themselves. So they had some stuff to work with and it's pretty engaging. I'm, I'm only partway through it. You know, I have to say that I was all excited about the vow and I did get to the end of the season of the vow, but I felt like it kind of ran out of gas before they got there. I feel like this is leading up to, you know, we all know what it's leading up to. I mean, it's like leading up to such an inevitability. So I'm interested to see how they get there, but it is a gorgeous looking documentary. It's well-researched. It's not exploitive, which, you know, you don't want to see something like this. It's an easy thing to make exploitive, but it's harder to make it, what Glenn Washington did in his podcast and what this is doing so far is making you understand where these people were coming from. And to me, that's a lot more interesting to, to, to understand how the human condition can be kind of turned into what the, the various things like this that it can be turned into and how relatively intelligent, educated, smart people with good critical thinking skills could decide that they were going to commit suicide so they could get on a UFO behind the comet hale Like that means we could all fall for that or maybe not all of us, but more of us than you think. So uh, anyway, recommend it. And, uh, you know, in general, uh, if you have an HBO subscription already and you have a Roku TV, now you can get HBO Max, which is a million times more programming than is on regular HBO.
3: I am familiar with the podcast. I had not uh, known about this uh, TV show that, of course, involves cult and murder, which is why it's your your short end. So, suicide. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's suicide. not really murder. Okay, they, well, they didn't kill anybody. All right. Well, they murdered themselves. It's, it's
2: not even like Jonestown. It's not even like they, they drank. By the way, in Jonestown, they, they drank Flavor-Aid. It was not Kool-Aid. So when people say drink the Kool-Aid, they're Kool-Aid's got, got the bad shit. rap. Cool. It's flavoring, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is like a cheap knockoff of flavoring. Like Jim Jones couldn't even spring for the real <laughs> stuff. However, like they're real victims of Jonestown, whereas Heaven's Gate, I don't believe there were any victims. Those people all really believed in what they were doing. Gotcha. It was their choice. Gotcha. So, so yeah. It was it their was... very informed choice. Now we can debate whether or not they succeeded in their mission, but it, it was the president's choice the kirkland
3: flavor of our version of uh, kool-aid it was flavor <laughs> thank you for the distinction i'm pretty sure you've mentioned that on the on this podcast before i
2: probably have <laughs> and you know if if i want to be a nerd and say you know whenever someone says you know oh you're drinking the kool-aid uh excuse me i think you mean the flavor excuse me I'll,
3: hold on let me push my I'm glasses not, up here what i think you I mean will is flavor i'll deserve <laughs> it
2: like there's there's no reason to correct people it's just <laughs> annoying that that we've got it so wrong
3: oh yes yeah, so so wrong <laughs> Kool-Aid has had this major hit to their reputation. from. Yeah.
2: Uh, <laughs> anyway, so Ilya, now that we've gone way off the rails, what is your short end? Uh, okay,
3: as this is D-Lensbur, I mean, you know, Glassmas, you know, uh, Christmas is past, but, you know, this is the last week of December, and I said I was going to do something about lenses every single episode. Here we are, or down to the last one. My, uh, my obsession this week is is a Chinese lens called SuRay. I, I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but it's a little tiny, it's a little tiny. It's a one pound anamorphic lens. It's made for most of the different uh, mirrorless camera formats out there. They're not expensive. Every lens is under 800 bucks. I think uh, 700, 699, something like that for, for most of them. They only had one focal length when I think I talked about it last time. They've since released a second one And they've got a third one coming out really soon in the new year. So really three uh, three, 133 squeeze anamorphic lenses. Someone who uh, had three grand and a mirrorless camera. Frankly, that's pretty much all you need if you wanted to make uh, if you want to make a little tiny movie with a big look format. And I, I have to say I've tested these lenses and I've put them up against much more expensive anamorphic lenses, including Anamorphic lenses that cost about thirty thousand dollars, which have a lot of buzz right now, which are from a, a another uh, another company out there right now, which uh, seems to be like the low budget you know go-to lens for people who want PL lenses. Well, these little lenses, these little sub thousand dollar lenses, resolve more than those expensive two times anamorphics. These these are sharper lenses, and they frankly make a really cool super thirty five image, which is exactly like what you what you would want out of a out of a little lens like this. And they are available in Panasonic mount and in uh, Fuji mount and soon in the Canon RF mount and uh, really, and the Sony E-mount. So it's, they're really capable, cool little things. And if you were the type of person who's like, hey, I want to spring for a little bit of money. I want to have a little sort of mirrorless camera package. I want to make a small movie. These lenses are going to enable someone to get much more of sort of that uh, big budget cine look, blue streaky flare sort of thing than most of the other stuff on the market that costs way, way more. And it's not a huge... I mean, there's there are sacrifices and corners cut when you're talking about a small lens like this. But if you're just talking about optical quality, you're just talking about how sharp the image is, how much of these sort of effects that you get from anamorphic, this thing basically ticks all the boxes. And uh, if you put it on one of the, the Panasonic Lumix cameras that have the D-Squeeze built in you're off to the races. This is a, is a, it's a really cool little thing. Very inexpensive. Uh, mark my words. Someone's going to decide they're going to want to run around with some friends and make uh, a really cool looking movie. And people are going to be like, how the hell did you do that? Well, they did it with this. They did it with these, these cheap lenses and cheap camera and a lot of ingenuity. And they're going to make something just like a uh, Francis Ford Coppola predicted many years ago, someone was going to win an Academy Award actually is, it it's a rather, uh, you know, famous statement, or I think he said like it was going to be a fat little girl or something was that a fat it? girl in Ohio, fat Literally, girl in Ohio, he, was it specified said. Ohio? Yeah. Um, is going to win an Academy Award. Well, uh, it would not surprise me. I, I think that, uh, times being what it is, I'm not going to say it's a fat girl in Ohio. I'm just going to say that someone, uh, of, of humble means is going to do something amazing and they're probably going
2: to use this sort of tech to do it. Uh, What what focal lengths does that lens come in? Uh,
3: It comes in currently a 35 and a 50 millimeter. The new one is a 24. And of course, these are all one, three, three squeeze. So that's going to be about a 33% wider field of view than you were otherwise getting. So you're going to be something about like 18, 24, 35 uh, sort of field of view, but it has all the compression characteristics of the actual focal length. I know it's a little bit confusing, but really, if you have three good anamorphic focal lengths, you can pretty much do what it is that you want to do and there's a couple little tricks that you can do to get uh, longer sort of uh, looks by way of cropping or by optical adapters and other things but uh, regardless uh, really really uh, competent lens considering the price and if you didn't tell someone how you were shooting, uh, yeah, it's they're they're incredible and they're, and they're fast. They're like they're pretty fast lenses. The widest one, the new one is the slowest at a 2.8, But I think the others are about a two. And that's more more than fast enough to, to do what you want to do
2: interesting if i were able to go places i would go uh go to your place and check those lenses out uh yes and and of course if you are uh, in the sound of my voice and you're thinking about
3: buying one of these things uh call hot rod cameras tell me you heard about it on this on this podcast maybe you'll you'll get a little discount maybe you'll get a little little bonus and a t-shirt and a t-shirt
2: demand your t-shirt uh you know i i gave away a couple of t-shirts last week it was fun sweet So I believe that that wraps us up, Ilya. Where can people find you if they wanted to, uh, say, interact with you in some meaningful way on uh, this thing called the Internet? Uh, you can find me over at
3: Hot Red Cameras, uh, HotRedCameras.com. That is uh, where I spend my Monday through Friday uh, working. That is uh, that's that's where I'm at. And then uh, you can reach me through Facebook. And hey, we should remind everyone to enter the book giveaway on our Facebook page. You have to go find the Bruce Van Dusen post, which is going to be right near the top. And comment and anyone who comments on that post is going to be entered into a, a randomized contest to win a copy of Bruce's book, 60 Stories, about 30 seconds. And uh, you know, don't don't forget, if you're you if you're listening to me, go to our Facebook page. It's going to be uh, Facebook forward slash Cinepod, C-I-N-E-P-O-D, and uh and enter the contest. You could win.
2: That's awesome. And the book is great and totally worth it. I've been noticing a lot more uh interaction happening on our facebook page so uh someone's listening so you can find me at uh benrockonline.com because benrock.com is owned by a fucking boat manufacturer and they won't let me have it even though they don't really use it at all like there's nothing there um so go to benrockonline.com and uh, you can find all my social medias and uh, reach out, say hi, say you listen to the podcast. Uh, if you see, so, if you if if you have anything you want to tell us, we'll probably read it on uh, on the show. We tend to do that a lot. you, you know, I've decided I'm going to
3: contact that boat company and write them an angry email that just says, "I'm really confused right now. I'm trying to find Ben Rock, producer, director, podcaster, and I've got this weird referral to this motorboat." company that doesn't exist anymore I, i'm really unhappy why don't you disable this
2: url because clearly it do, it it's disabled there's nothing there if you go to benrock.com right now it, there's just nothing there there's nothing like, there. there isn't even a, there's not even a holding page it doesn't refer you to anything else <sighs> they're not using it the company there was a company called benrock that made like motorboats or something and then <laughs> they were bought by another company called marine one and then they were bought by uh brunswick uh and years said, ago And they just like, and and I reached out to them over their Facebook page to see if they would sell me the URL and they got back and said, we're not, we're not interested in doing this at the moment. You know,
3: if they get back to you and just say, look, $150,000, you know that now that they're, they're open to this idea. They're open to the idea of getting rid of it and just wear them down over time. By the time you're like 60, you're going to have this domain. I'm confident.
2: I'm pretty sure. Yeah. By the time I'm 60 and we will have moved on from the internet, we'll be doing something else. (laughs) Uh, Telekinesis. (laughs) It's 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 super frustrating, and uh, I just want my my name. I, I I'll sign a thing saying I'll never sell a boat. If they were honestly, when they were when it was referring to their page, I'm like, look, if they sell one boat a year because of this, I get it. Like I can't offer them more money than what it would cost to sell one boat. But for God's sakes, like it's been years. They don't use it at all. There's nothing. There's nothing there. Anyway, all right. Let's uh, thank some people. Not, let's let's thank some people. Please, please, <laughs> okay. let's get out off hey. of this topic.
3: <laughs> let's thank. First up, not listening. Kay Zalatrachi, you made all the music that people heard during this episode. Every single bit of it, you made it, and you're not listening to the sound of my voice. Thank you very much for all that work. You Thank know, you very
2: much. Uh, even, even though you're not, even though he's not listening to this, I want to plug his tutorial page on YouTube. He does tutorials for uh, mostly DaVinci Resolve, and it's called Right Brain Tutorials. Oh, and, of course, because uh,
3: he had so much extra
2: spare time, yeah, because he's <laughs> yeah. So I I think it's mostly DaVinci Resolve, although he might also be doing Blender or some crazy 3D stuff. Um, well, but well, yeah, so, so I check actually, that out.
3: I need to learn some DaVinci Resolve, so maybe I'll I'll spend some time there.
2: Yeah, definitely. No, I, oh, he'd love to tell you all about DaVinci Resolve. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we also need to thank uh, Ben Katz, our intrepid, hardworking editor. Ben, thank you for everything you do. You make us sound like not quite as much of idiots as we actually are.
3: And of course, Alana Cody, thank you very much. Thank you for you know making it
2: happen during this pandemic. Holy crap! Year. Yeah. How many how many people has Alana lined up for us to interview, even just this last year? Isn't it like in the '60s? It would have to be in the '60s. More more than one a week for sure.
3: So we're, we're and during
2: just... the pandemic, like our uh, our productivity went through the roof. Like that. It's it's the one part of my life that's just like you know on overdrive right now is this podcast. It's true and it's incredible and actually you know we're we're gonna kind of
3: put together a listener approved best of sort of episode of 2020 because we did so much we had so much volume. Uh, we're we're asking uh, we're asking our listeners hey if you if there's someone that you really liked uh, we've got a post on our Facebook page and our Instagram tell us what tell us what you love tell us which episode you thought was was great maybe we'll we'll pick a clip from that for our sort of best of 2020 show.
2: Cool. So let's leave it right there and uh, that does it for today, but we will be back next week with yet another exciting, fresh, new, never before heard by anyone episode of The Cinematography Podcast.
1: This has been The Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter.